Okay, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. You'll find that on page 941 in the church uh, Bibles. Let me just very quickly uh, recap on Paul's argument for those of you who are here in Romans for the first time uh, today. Just have a glance back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is Paul's kind of manifesto, if you like. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, or literally, for I am confident in the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's his manifesto, the righteousness of God is made known. Now just glance back to chapter 3 verse 21, which we'll read more fully in a minute. Chapter 3 verse 21 reads, but now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known or revealed. So chapter 1 verse 17 and chapter 3 verse 21 are identical absolutely the same. But there's a big chunk between 117 and 321, 64 verses, in fact. And Paul's logic is this. You see the first heading on the inside of the service sheet, the righteousness of God. Somebody asked me after last week, what exactly is the righteousness of God? And it's such a elemental thing that we might just miss it as we study Romans. We know we need righteousness, but what is it? The righteousness of God is all that God is, His nature, His sinless, perfect, pure, and holy nature, and fellowship with God, a familial relationship with God, is only possible for us if we are as righteous as Him. Perfect, pure, holy, and sinless. In other words, what God requires of us to have a relationship with us is that we are what He created us to be men and women in his image. And part of what it means to be in the image of God is to reflect the righteousness of God. Our problem as humanity is that we are by sin all unrighteous and therefore under God's wrath and his judgment. That's the second heading on the sheet and that has been the focus of our argument through 118 to 320. Why does Paul not just get on with explaining the gospel, 321? His purpose in this long section that we've been looking at over three weeks is to convince us that we are all unrighteous. Sermon series on Romans that take 118 to 320 in one week, I suspect what they do is that they, they, they bring not all of a congregation with Paul's argument that you need three weeks 
to get to the point, chapter 3, verse 20, where everyone is convinced. And not all of you are yet convinced from the conversations I would have with you that all humanity is unrighteous and under God's wrath. And Paul picks up and argues against the classic objections to that, for example, but what about good people? And that's not a hypothetical question. Often it's not what about good people, it's what about me? This idea of living a good life, as if our relative moral goodness, that is relative moral goodness to our fellow humanity, is enough to save us. Surely God will look well on the good life that I live. And Paul dismantles that argument. He dismantles that argument in saying that we will never be good enough, which we find hard to hear. But he dismantles it more powerfully by saying we're not really good in our heart of hearts at all, as you and I well know. I wonder how your Saturday was in your house. Was it a display of perfect righteousness in every thought, conversation, and act? One or two smiles suggest it wasn't. What about religious people? What about religion? Surely religion will save us. And it's not just the, the simplistic, I go to church or I go to communion once a month and all. It, there's, a, there's, a, there's an evangelical religion, the kind of religion that we are part of, that, that sings worship songs, that goes to conferences, that, that listens to podcasts and all that kind of stuff. That is not enough to save us. In fact, it's got nothing to do with our salvation. It's the fruit of it. And Paul's argument concludes we are all unrighteous and under God's wrath. Now, we've defined righteousness, which is perfect purity. What is wrath? The wrath of God is the, is the, the, the settled, steady, necessary, just anger of God, fury of God. I mean, it is fury. It's not, it's not a kind of forensic category of a, an attribute of God's character. It's fury. It's judgment. It's uh, uh, the anger of God against human sin. God is angry with us, angry with us. And when it comes to the gospel, you've got to work hard at unwinding all the suppositions we have, all the defaults we have. How can a loving God be angry with us? God is angry with us, and he loves us enough to provide a solution for that wrath. But he is angry. If we do not repent and believe now, we would experience God's wrath on judgment day. We are all unrighteous and all under the wrath of God. Now, we cannot exaggerate the gravity of the problem we face as human beings, our utter helplessness before God, the awfulness of God's judgment. I had a conversation this week praying with people, and we prayed about somebody who was uh, not a Christian, and one of the people at the end of the prayer almost, almost panicked as they grasped the extraordinary gravity of what that means. And Paul's line through Romans, I think, is that you never truly appreciate or have full confidence in the gospel until you realize not only what you are saved for, 
how you are saved, but what you have been saved from. I think that's absolutely uh, right. You know how people, when they uh, are rescued from uh, a life-threatening situation, somebody, for example, who is rescued from being capsized on a boat in the sea, and they're interviewed afterwards, and they'll say something like, I'm going to sort stuff out. I'm never going to live the same way again. And I suspect that's true to a large extent. And when we realize what we have been saved from, well, we'll never live the same way again. Right, on to God's glorious solution. I've written it out in the sheets for you, so you've got no excuse but to look at it um, and the outline at the same time. It's a little tightly packed text. Um, Very, very important, though, what it says. So let me read it from uh, the sheet. Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Uh, The law pointed to the need for righteousness. It wasn't righteousness. Although the law and the prophets bear witness or point to it, what's been revealed, the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that word is the same as the righteous word, justified, literally declared righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, Jesus that is, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show or reveal God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, literally righteous, and the justifier, literally the righteouser of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, don't go, what's all that about? Okay, this is a bit in Romans where we'll just slow down. And we need as Christians to know what these words mean. You don't have to remember the word afterwards. You just need to know the truth and remember the truth in your heart and mind. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now, let's work through Paul's logic, and you'll see the headings on the sheet. God's gracious solution. Firstly, righteousness from God. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, the dominant theme, I guess, through these verses, 21 to 25a, is the righteousness of God. It is how the passage begins, verse 21, the beginning of verse 22, just look with me, the righteousness of God, again, through faith in Christ. Verse 24, we are justified. The word is literally translated, declared righteous, or this isn't a word, but it gets it, I think, righteous, righteous. The second half of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness so that He might be just, that is, righteous, and the justifier, that is, the righteouser of the one. So, the righteousness of God is all over these verses, and the righteousness of God is at the very heart of the heart of the gospel. You are not a Christian unless you have received the righteousness of God. It's got nothing to do with how you live being a Christian. That comes after your conversion. It has got nothing to do with how religious you are that you become a Christian. You become a Christian when you receive the righteousness of God. 
I mean, it's a lot better, isn't it? I mean, it's sobering, this stuff. But imagine if I had to preach every week a kind of moral equation that this week you've got to try harder, that we just might move one step up the ladder. Or imagine if we had to to take a census as to how many Sundays you made it here so that our religious affiliation in some way could be stored up, put on our CV of life and given to God. What we're being told here is none of that is going to convert you what you need. And then you can say it like that, what you need, and that's kind of sobering, and, or what I'm going to give you is my own righteousness. And that's a whole lot better, isn't it? Um, the righteousness of God is a track that runs through these verses. So also is the, the concept of it being revealed. Verse 21, it's been manifested or made known. Verse 25, it's been put forward, a public revelation. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, to show his righteousness. The righteousness of God, Romans 3.21, has been made known. If you go to somewhere like John's Gospel, you're quite right in your mind. The Word has become flesh. The righteousness of God has been made in human form and has appeared among you. Now, here's a wonderful thing. This was Luther's great discovery, I think, that um, poor Luther, he gets quoted endlessly on the 500th anniversary of his nailing of his thesis uh, to, uh, to the door of, of a cathedral and so on and so forth. But um, I'm just quoting him again, so never mind. <laughs> Here we go. This is Luther's great discovery. He always felt that the righteousness of God that is revealed in Jesus was a kind of unapproachable, unacceptable, impossible standard to attain to because he always believed that his, that his status before God was a product of his moralism or his Christ-likeness or his, his religion. And, and, and so all of a sudden he discovered that the righteousness of God that is revealed is not to taunt us, not to set up an unattainable standard, but it's righteousness from God for us. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Do you know, it just might be that someone is just, the penny's dropping. What a great moment that would be, wouldn't it? If all the stuff that you have thought gains you merit before God is stripped away and God is gently whispering in your ear, righteousness from me, for you. Now, righteousness is from God, and because the righteousness we so desperately need is from God, second heading, it is a grace gift from God received by faith alone. Verses 22 and 23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's point that this righteousness that comes from God is received by faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is received by faith alone. Now that's logical. 
It is only by faith because there is no alternative. There is nothing a human being can do to merit the gift of righteousness. Paul makes that clear in another way. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteousness of God, the requirement is the glory of God. You can't attain that. I can't attain that. So all you can do is receive it by faith. And all the objections come back. Surely it's not... Well, I don't think people say, surely it's not as simple as that. I don't think we struggle with the logic. We struggle with the, the need to be humble before this. We struggle with the putting aside of our human pride. Surely, surely, it's a kind of bargain between what God gives us and what we give Him. Faith alone. In Christ alone. For salvation. And if you are the person in whose mind and heart this is beginning to dawn, I just wonder if that brings a smile to your face. Because you have no assurance if it is faith alone, plus a bit of my righteousness alone, plus a bit of my religion. But if it's faith alone, and all of a sudden you can sit here and know that all of eternity is secure. That's a good thing. Faith alone is, though, offensive to human pride. It's hard for those outside the church to come to terms with. It's hard for those inside the church to come to terms with. The same point that the saving righteousness of God is received by faith alone is made in verses 24 and 25. We are justified, that is literally declared righteous by His grace as a gift. Grace uh, simply means the unmerited kindness, the mercy of God held out as a free gift to uh, humanity. You know the classic illustration you get at carol services um, when, uh, I think it's on Christianity Explored, there's a, a video of a, of a child um, being given uh, a, a parcel on Christmas morning that's obviously a bike you know how you wrap up a present and it looks like what it is underneath. And uh, the child says, well, I don't want it. And there's another little skit and the child says, how much do I owe you on Christmas Day? Of course, a gift is not a gift until you receive it. And that's how it is with us and God. How much do I owe you? I insist on paying. I have rich resources. My life is good. I will not accept your free gift. And like a human parent when a gift is rejected, or imagine a human parent, many of you are parents, if your child felt they needed to give you money for a gift. Think of God, give his son, and people say no. Now, righteousness is made possible through the death of Jesus. This is when you need to really concentrate. These big words, but they're great. Bible words have Bible meanings. There's something precise about these words. It's not kind of something vague. What exactly, how do exactly do we... So, here's the logic. Righteousness from God is a grace gift received by faith. The unanswered question, how exactly does God make us righteous? Now, you know the answer to that, through the cross of Christ. Yep, 
But what happened on the cross? Or maybe you don't know that. How is it that God can give you his righteousness? The answer is found in verses 24 and 25, really uh, critical verses in the Bible. Let's read in from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, to summarize that, uh, righteousness is made possible or righteousness is given to you through or because of or never apart from the death of Jesus. Righteousness is made possible through the death of Jesus. Now, in order to understand this and for me to explain it, I've highlighted three words from these verses, and they're written out on this sheet. And the words are justified, redemption, and propitiation. Now, I, please don't remember the words. Okay? God's not going to... You, you, can't, you can't be justified because you can define the words. You've got to understand them appreciate them and believe them and dwell on them and meditate on them. Justified, literally declared righteous. We are justified, Paul says, by his grace as a gift. To be justified means to be declared righteous, literally righteous. Someone who is not righteous being declared to be righteous. When you become a Christian, you are justified or declared righteous at that moment. When we face Jesus as judge one day, as we all will, physically, face to face, and on that day, judgment day, he will give his verdict. Picture yourself standing in the dock facing Jesus as your judge. And that will happen literally, the Bible tells us. He's about to pronounce his verdict on your life. You're waiting, and then the verdict comes, as it will, God willing, for us all, on that day. The words will come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. This one is justified. This one has been declared righteous. Now, is that the verdict you want when you stand before Jesus? Surely it is. I mean, I say, I say, surely it is. Why is it that for people it's not? Why is that? It's hard to understand. Surely it is the verdict because not to have him say righteous. He will say unrighteous. And to be declared unrighteous at the gate of eternity is to be subject to the wrath of God in eternity, in hell. So the verdict we want when we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day is justified, declared righteous. And if that's the verdict you want then, wouldn't you like it now? 
I mean, wouldn't you like it? No. Well, the wonderful truth is that in the gospel, you can have it now. If you become a Christian today, the verdict of judgment day is given today. Why? Because the verdict is based 100% on what? The death of Jesus Christ. Where the verdict based on 99% the death of Jesus plus 1% your obedience or 1% your religion or 1% your moral standing or 1% how much evangelism you do. Now all of these things are fruits of faith and if they're not there you've got to worry. But none of them ever merit justification. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great verse to preach on. Roger's stolen it from me. I'm going to win it back by then. There is therefore now. What does that word now mean? It means now. It means right now. Right now, at this very moment, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. As you sit here this morning, and if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, you have the verdict of judgment day etched on your heart and in your mind, written in God's mind now. And that radically changes the way you live. Second word, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The price that must be paid is the death of Jesus. Surely this cannot come free. There must be a cost. Our justification, our righteousness must come at a price, surely. Yes, it does come at a price. For us it is free. It is offered to us by grace as a gift. All that is required of us is faith, but there is a cost, an enormous cost that had to be paid that we might be declared righteous. And if you've been a Christian for many years, you're kind of hearing stuff you know, and it just ticks little boxes on your, your, your kind of Christian theology or your creed. Please don't let it do that. You know, when you sing, the price is paid. It's a big deal. The price that bought us the declaration of righteousness received by grace alone through faith alone is the death of Jesus. Redemption is a legal term. It means bought with a price. Jesus Christ paid for our freedom with his life for the Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we are justified, that is declared righteous. It is offered to us by grace as a gift to be received by faith. It is free for us, but there was a price to pay. That price was paid by Jesus through his death on the cross. And that takes us now to the very heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel is what happened when Jesus suffered for these three hours and died on the cross. 
what exactly was the price that he had to pay, the cost he had to bear. Let's read verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood simply means by or through his death. But what does propitiation mean? It means wrath satisfied or wrath quenched. Now, this is really critical. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sins. But he bore the wrath for our sin in order that we be forgiven. You know, he can't simply hang on the cross with all the weight of human sin in his shoulders. He hung on the cross with all the weight of human sin in his shoulders and all the weight of God's fury on his shoulders on top of that sin to deal with the sin. Without propitiation and what that means, there's no gospel. Because the wrath of God, the judgment of God, for human sin needs to be dealt with. And the wrath of God, God's anger because of our sins, stored up to be poured out in us on the day of judgment. The wrath of God that should rightly be directed against us because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness, was redirected onto Jesus. Redirected and satisfied. Quenched. Extinguished satisfied, dealt with, gone forever. And why or how was the wrath of God quenched and satisfied through Jesus' death? Because Jesus is in his humanity righteous like God. The righteous one bearing the punishment of the unrighteous, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus in our place atoning for our sin. The Lord Jesus died as our substitute to bear the penalty for sin. The one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, what of those who do not trust Jesus? Here's the answer. That the wrath of God that Jesus bore for three hours on the cross that caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Will be born by those who reject Jesus for all eternity in hell. What Jesus endured in its awfulness will be what people who do not receive the gospel endure for eternity. That's what Jesus says. You see how Romans energize us and motivates us for evangelism? And I know because this is a church, a family, 
that for some of us, that means people really close to us. And that's hard. But surely it is better to know that about them than not to know that and say nothing. Surely it is. Surely it is better to remember that God, who in some remarkable way broke into your heart and mine, can break into their heart. Now, we'd love it to be today or tomorrow. But we must believe that he can do it. Maybe on their deathbed. And there's so much guff out there as to what the gospel is. This is what the gospel is. It makes logical sense in your mind and it's very persuasive in your heart because you know how bleak and black and dirty your heart is like mine. And you know that you cannot muster self-righteousness or religion and stand before a holy God and say, look how wonderful I am. The gospel brings us to the feet of Jesus Christ. And all we can do is lay hold of them by faith. And that's a very wonderful thing because into our hearts floods the assurance of forgiveness and life and peace. And I know as a pastor that Humanly speaking, if this was a human service and we would all go home, and those of us, and I can think of people, my closest friends who aren't Christians, we'd all go home and never come back because we'd go somewhere else for a different gospel. But I know we'll all come back because I all know we, we know it's true. We know it's true. Now, instead of having some fancy conclusion to my sermon, I think what we're going to do is just be quiet for a moment and we're going to pray for these people and give thanks from the depths of our hearts that God has opened our hearts to the gospel. Let's do that. Our Father, Paul goes on in these last couple of verses to say that this solution to the human problem is just and forgiving. Just to address a question that some people might have and we pray Lord that we would accept that it is just and forgiving but we want to take just these two or three minutes we have to uh, firstly thank you with a profound sense of thanksgiving that you have broken into this weary and dark world through your son and that you put him forward to bear the sin of all those who would believe and to bear your own wrath and judgment. You did that on your son for us. That through faith, by grace, his righteousness is ours. So that now as we sit here, we can hear the Lord Jesus in our hearts. We can hear his words on Judgment Day in the future. We hear it now. 
justified. Justified. Righteous. Welcome home. But Lord, many of us here, our hearts are with loved ones, perhaps who once were here. People in our hearts now, mums and dads and husbands and wives and sons and daughters, grandparents, grandchildren, who are not even close to humbly bowing before Jesus Christ for salvation, but a million miles away. Lord, will you, by your mercy, open their eyes and save them from an eternity in hell? Help us to trust that you opened our eyes so you could open theirs. That what was once so alien to us might become very real to them. And then let me, in this spirit of prayer, just read these words, a wonderful hymn for us, an old hymn. We can't sing it, but let me read these words as we pray about what it means to come to terms with this. I once was a stranger to grace and to God, I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on his cross, the Lord is my righteousness, meant nothing to me. I often read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, the Lord is my righteousness, seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that rolled, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. The Lord is my righteousness, was nothing to me. But then when free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die, no refuge, no safety in self could I see. The Lord is my righteousness, my saviour must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came. To drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. The Lord is my righteousness, is all things to me. The Lord is my righteousness, I my treasure and boast. The Lord is my righteousness, I never can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. And even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever, my God sets me free, the Lord is my righteousness, my death song shall be. Our Father, from all that we can muster, we pray that this would be real in our lives and in the lives of those whom we love who do not yet know you. And all we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>